Please remain standing for our gospel lesson and sermon text from Luke chapter 19. Again, give your ear to God's gospel. When he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to them, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it, just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners said to them, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then, as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as he drew near, he saw the city, and he wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, you and your children within you, to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Thus far the reading of God's Word. This is the Word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your Word, and we thank you for your son Jesus, who rode into Jerusalem on our behalf and on the behalf of your people and for you and for your glory. Lord, we pray that as we consider your word today, that you would reveal him to us in a, in a new and greater way and conform us into his image. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Without a doubt, for the disciples... The events that we're reading about, that we're considering today, often called the triumphal entry, had to be one of the high points of their life and ministry with Jesus when Jesus was here on earth. And indeed, Luke's gospel has been building to this moment. In Luke chapter 9, Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ of God. And not too long after that, Jesus says that he must set his face and go to Jerusalem. And the whole ten chapters between that confession and the beginning of that journey and now is a long journey filled with ministry and exorcisms and teachings and healings and miracles, and you can see the sense of expectation building with each successive chapter that this is the Christ, and this is Jesus coming to the royal 
city. We might imagine what it was like for the disciples on that Palm Sunday many years ago as they approached Bethany. And Jesus points out the village opposite them and says, Go and get a colt. I'm going to ride uh, the colt of a donkey into Jerusalem. As they, you, you can imagine the mood, which was high anyway, just because it was the Feast of Passover, and there were tons of pilgrims streaming into Jerusalem, and they have been watching Jesus perform all of these miracles and do all of his teachings. And there he says, Go and get a colt. I am riding the colt into Jerusalem, and they must know this is the sign. As we read Zechariah 9 9 earlier, this is the sign of the Messiah coming into his kingdom. And as they and the crowd around them begin to cut palm branches down and wave them and celebrate Jesus and throw their cloaks on the road, the sense of the moment reaches a fever pitch. And then as they crest the Mount of Olives and they begin coming down and they look out and they see in the distance Jerusalem, the capital city, the city of David, and they look up to Jesus, the Christ, coming to his city, and he begins sobbing. That's the word it says when it says that Jesus began to weep over Jerusalem. It wasn't that he was dabbing his eyes with his cloak. It's, it's a word that means to sob, to heave, to wail even. What a moment. What a moment of expectation. Here's the Christ and Jesus begins sobbing. Why is Jesus sobbing on that first Palm Sunday? Well, look with me at verses 41 and 42. It says, As he drew near, he saw the city and began to weep over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Jesus begins to weep over the spiritual blindness of Jerusalem. Of all the cities in the world, of all the peoples in the world, Jerusalem should have known that the time of the Messiah had finally and fully come and that Jesus of Nazareth was that Messiah. Jerusalem's privileges were innumerable. Think about that city. That was the city where it was the temple and the festivals and the sacrifices. Jerusalem had the scribes and the teachers of the law. God constantly sent prophets to Jerusalem to speak his word and explain the scriptures to them. They had righteous kings like David and Solomon. Jesus himself had preached and taught and healed multiple times within the walls of Jerusalem. And yet as he approaches Jerusalem, he realizes that they do not know, they do not understand the signs of the times, and they do not accept that he is the Messiah of God. We might be able to say of Jerusalem what Paul says in Romans 9 of all of Israel, that to them belonged the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came. Christ came to Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday long ago, but she would not recognize him. Her rulers were willfully ignorant. 
The Pharisees that we read about today are a perfect example. In verse 39, they say, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They grudgingly admit that Jesus is a teacher, but they cannot call him king, and certainly not the king, the blessed one who comes in the name of the Lord. It's fine, they say, for you to be the teacher, the rabbi of your little sect of disciples, but the Messiah, the heir of David, the ruler of the world, they want to keep Jesus in his place. This is the spiritual state of the city. Ironically, they're asking Jesus to show a little humility and reject the grandiose claims that his disciples are making for him. Despite every privilege, every advantage, Jerusalem and her people would not and could not recognize the Prince of Peace. They could not see the things, as Jesus said, that make for their peace. And therefore, on that first Palm Sunday, as Jesus sees Jerusalem, he pronounces a word of judgment in verse 43 and 44, that not one stone would be left upon another. And that word would be fulfilled near 40 years later in 70 AD, as the Romans did surround the city, kill many of the inhabitants, set it on fire, and pull it to pieces. That spiritual blindness of that great city with all of its privileges, touches the heart of Christ. Jesus sheds tears over their lost condition and the judgment that is to come. On the flip side, the disciples do confess Jesus as the Christ. They are joyful at His coming, waving palm branches, even though palm branches aren't in Luke's Gospel on this Palm Sunday. We know from the other Gospels that they do. They're waving palm branches, spreading their cloaks, cloaks, singing Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The disciples joyfully accept Jesus as the Messiah. And the crowds around them do as well. And yet John candidly tells us in his Gospel that his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. John 12, 16. That's quite honest of John, isn't it? To, to say, I participated, we had this parade for Jesus, and really at the time, I didn't understand what was going on. Right? He didn't have to say that, but he tells us, I think for our benefit, that the disciples really don't understand. In other words, the disciples are worshiping and serving much better than they know. That's a common trait in, in John's Gospel and Luke's Gospel and all of the Gospels, that people say and do things that have far more import and are far more appropriate than even they themselves realize. And the disciples are doing that. Their devotion to Jesus was true and their loyalty was honest and yet there can be little doubt that the disciples and the crowds expected Jesus to be an earthly and political Messiah. Someone who would defeat the Romans militarily, dethrone Herod, and take his rightful place as the Davidic king. 
Someone who would rebuke and reform the religious establishment. Someone whose righteous kingdom would stretch from sea to sea, bringing in peace and harmony and the true worship of God. If we look at the greater context, Jesus had just told the parable of the Minas, which ends with the king receiving his kingdom, slaying his enemies, and rewarding his servants. Then Jesus immediately turns and begins to march into Jerusalem. As we read in verse 28, 19-28, when he had said this, when he had told the parable, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. If you were Jesus' disciple, and you had been following him for three years, and you had seen him perform the miracles and the exorcisms, and heard the gracious teachings from his lips, how would you have interpreted that parable? Would you have done any differently than the disciples? You can understand their excitement and how it mounts as they mount the Mount of Olives and Jesus asks for the colt. It's salvation, deliverance. The hopes and dreams of God's kingdom for them is just moments away. And here they are with the king. And they're not wrong. They're not wrong. It's just that their understanding is too low. In another way, the disciples also do not understand the things that make for their peace. They have not reckoned with the necessity of the cross. That's how Jesus can tell them about his need to go to Jerusalem and be rejected and die. And immediately they begin arguing about which one of them will be the greatest when they get there. That's why just a little less than a week later, those same celebrating disciples will be shocked and dejected, lost, disoriented when Jesus is lying dead in a grave. They understood in a certain way the alreadyness, if you will, of Jesus' kingdom, that he is the true son of David, that he is the, the king that is depicted in Psalm 118. But they do not understand at this point the not yet of his kingdom. They have not reckoned with the cross. And friends, I want to suggest to you that the crowds that surrounded Jesus on Palm Sunday many, many years ago in Luke's Gospel are not very different from the crowds that surround Jesus on this Palm Sunday. Even though our devotion is true and our loyalty is honest, we too can have trouble understanding the outworking of Jesus' kingdom in life, can't we? We can also ask questions like, when is Jesus going to make it better for me? Politically, or medically, or socially. Isn't Jesus going to bring righteousness and harmony to my family or to my community? Likewise, spiritual blindness is the fate of all of us apart from Christ. As Paul tells us in Ephesians, that before we come to know Christ, we have our understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in us, because of the blindness of our hearts. Ephesians 4.18 This is especially sad if it happens within the church. To be surrounded by the singing and the prayers and the scriptures and the preaching 
and the teaching and to not have, like Jerusalem, that true loyalty of faith. It's like being a man who is starving to death at a feast table. See, it is, it is faith that reaches out and takes hold of Jesus presented to you in the scriptures, in the preaching, in the songs, in the word. It's why Jesus is weeping at the triumphal entry. So do we need to rename this? Should, should we begin to call this the lamentful entry? The sad entry? I don't think so. This is actually the moment of deep grace. Because Jesus really is the coming king, riding into Jerusalem to be enthroned on a cross. The cross is that place of God's paradox and grace that changes absolutely everything. Jesus said over and over and over again in Luke's gospel that his purpose was to seek and save that which was lost. His steadfast purpose was to establish his kingdom by dying on a cross for the sins of the world and rising from the dead. This is the very thing that as we read, Jesus is riding into Jerusalem to do. In Luke 9, I said at the beginning, he asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, the Christ of God. And Jesus immediately tells them, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised the third day. Luke 9.22 When he set his face to go to Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday, he knew what would happen to him there, and he embraced it as the will of his loving Father to establish his kingdom on the forgiveness of sins through his death and resurrection. God had planned it all out of infinite love to sinners like you and me, and he had appointed a time. Jesus was and is the very embodiment of the Father's love for sinners. And he saw that his time had come and he set his face to fulfill his mission, to die in Jerusalem for our sake. No one takes my life from me, Jesus said, but I lay it down of my own accord. John ten eighteen. That grace and paradox of the cross, of Jesus' purpose, changes absolutely everything. What does Jesus do with the disciples' imperfect worship and praise? Does he say, oh, you just don't get it. You just don't understand. Does he get frustrated or angry? No, he accepts it. Look at verse 38. The disciples are saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Jesus accepts their worship and praise, imperfect as it is. See the grace of God that is already at work in the disciples. It's at work in them and it's at work through them. God revealed to them that Jesus was the Christ. 
truly. And he ex- inspired their praise and joy for the mighty works that, Jesus, that God had wrought through him. They rightly adapt Psalm 118. I don't know if you notice that when we read it, but Psalm 118 says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In the disciples' version here, it's, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. God gives them an understanding that they, uh, that they knew that Jesus was the Messiah, even if they didn't understand it completely. And that shows you that faith is not a matter of intellect, but of love. God gave them that love and faith which impelled their imperfect obedience. See, they were, they were completely, they were as obedient to Jesus as they could be. When he said, go and find the donkey and loose it and bring it to me, immediately they leave and they obey. God gave them that love and faith that inspired their submission to him. That's the significance of laying down your cloak. Your cloak, your clothes were a symbol of authority, a symbol of your very self. Think about the parable of the prodigal son. When the prodigal returns, the father says, bring out the robe and put it on him. Put the ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Signs of sonship and authority. Joseph likewise had a robe that signaled his authority over his brothers. As the disciples take off their robes and they lay them at the feet of Jesus, they are saying, I'm submitting my entire self to you. I'm submitting all of my authority to you. I'm acknowledging that you are the Christ. God, the, the faith and love that God is working in them is impelling them to do this. Later, God would empower them by the Holy Spirit to have a greater understanding and take up their crosses and follow Jesus to death in humble service to the world. Friends, God accepts your imperfect praise, your faltering obedience, and your incomplete submission. And he does so because Jesus rode into Jerusalem to die on the cross for you so that your sins and failures might be accounted to him and his perfect righteousness might be credited to you. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, that is, by grace you have been saved through faith. And that is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You are not saved by your good works, but you are saved of necessity to good works. But notice that God is the one who planned them, and God is the one who gives them to you. And like the disciples, God will empower you by the Holy Spirit to have a greater understanding and take up your cross and follow him in humble service to others. Just as Paul said in our epistle lesson, let this mind that was in Christ be in you. This mind is yours in Christ who being in the very form of God, did not count equality with God something to be clutched at, but emptied himself and came and took on the form of a servant. Let that mind be in you to have an understanding that when Jesus calls us to follow him, he calls us to follow him through Palm Sunday to the cross to take up our own crosses because he took up his cross for us. So we should work hard at serving the Lord but do so from a place of rest, 
knowing that Jesus rode in to Jerusalem for you. That the very works that God has, has given you to do are gifts of faith and love that he gives to you. So sing joyfully to him. Lay your whole self down at his feet. But do it all knowing that your faith and your obedience, just like the disciples those many years ago, is a gift from God. One thing this teaches us to do is to be patient with those whose understanding is not quite to the place ours is or to the place that we would like. By the power of the Holy Spirit, God is working in each of us to have a greater understanding of what it means to follow Jesus, to take up our cross. So be patient with one another as we endeavor all to follow him. But God's grace does not end just for his fans, just for his disciples in the text. Jesus rode into Jerusalem to go to the cross for Jerusalem also. Jesus, in other other words, has grace for the spiritually blind as well. You'll notice in the text that Jesus is not angry. He is not gritting his teeth over Jerusalem. He is weeping over Jerusalem. And he pronounces judgment, yes. But I want you to think about Peter's sermon at Pentecost just a little while later in the book of Acts. As he stands in Jerusalem after Jesus' death and resurrection, and he looks out over the crowd, he says to them, This Jesus you took with lawless hands and crucified, but God has raised him up. And when the crowd says, brethren, what shall we do? Peter does not say, it's too late. It's over. You're all toast. (laughs) That's not what Peter says. He says, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus and be baptized that your sins may be forgiven. And that day, 3,000 people were given eternal life. And many of them lived in Jerusalem. If you are here and you have not seen the grace of God in Christ, if you do not believe in Him, if your life is marked by sin and self-seeking rather than believing service to God, that picture of judgment in 70 AD that Jesus gives, let me read it for you again. He says, days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. If that's you today, if you do not know the time of your visitation, and you are living a life of self-seeking, you need to know that that picture that Jesus gives of judgment in 70 AD is just a small dim flicker of the eternal judgment that awaits those who reject the gracious offer of Jesus Christ. But you must also know that Jesus rode into Jerusalem to go to the cross for you. That you, even now, even today, can repent and believe in him and have your sins washed away that God might send you times of refreshing. 
If you are in the church and you've been blind to God's grace and religion, like Jerusalem, like the Pharisees to you, is a mere form, you need to know that Jesus rode into Jerusalem to go to the cross for you, to see God's grace and take hold of him by faith. Jesus' grace towards the blind, the spiritually blind, teaches us to have grace towards the same. I must wonder very much if, if many of us or any of us have wept over lost souls like Jesus did. If we desire, like Peter did, to tell them that even though they killed the Lord of glory, God raised him up and offers them forgiveness based on his death and resurrection. Friends, if that is not your manner, if that is not your demeanor or your desire towards those who are blind to Christ, let the Holy Spirit work in you and illumine you to understand and to see Jesus weeping over the blind, the spiritually blind in Jerusalem and riding into Jerusalem to die on the cross for them. And let that shape the way that you interact with them, the way that you talk to them. May it shape the way that we as a people in a congregation preach to those outside, those who are blind to Jesus, who have mercy and weep over them as well. Because Jesus is riding into Jerusalem to triumph over sin and death and hell and your sins and mine. It is a joyous day, and yet it is a day that Jesus weeps. And even though he weeps, he knows that his purpose is to go into Jerusalem to die for your sins and to mine and for mine and to empower us to follow him with our very lives and to preach the message of God's forgiveness and grace to a blind and suffering world. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that Jesus did come and ride into Jerusalem on our behalf, that he established his kingdom on the forgiveness of sins, and that you have given us faith and true love for him. Lord, we pray that you would increase our faith, increase our love, increase our understanding, so that we continually walk closer and closer with him for the rest of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.